This is the Doubles Only Tennis Podcast, where you learn the best tips and strategies in the world to help you become a smarter, more effective tennis player. You'll hear interviews with pro tour doubles players and coaches, including easy-to-use lessons to improve your game and win more matches. My name is Will Bocek, founder of the Tennis Tribe, doubles strategy coach, and host of the show. Before we dive into this episode, uh, I wanted to give you kind of a quick disclaimer. Uh, This is the first time I think I've had to do this on the show. Um, but uh, this episode is for informational purposes only. Uh, before implementing anything that we talk about in this episode, definitely uh, consult with your doctor. Um, don't be dumb, folks. Uh, be sure to um, play it safe and talk with a medical expert before you implement any sort of uh, training routine or uh, anything like that. Um, but with that out of the way, uh, this conversation is with Dr. Mark Kovacs. So uh, Mark has done um, literally probably everything there is to do in tennis um, as far as uh, he's been a player, a coach. Um, he's a doctor. He's uh, worked in physio. He's worked with some of the top uh, NFL athletes. He's worked with some of the fastest track athletes in the world. Um, he's worked with some of the top tennis players in the world. And uh, he's an author. He's a speaker. Um, he's literally done everything. So uh, this is a really fun conversation. We don't get to double strategy as much as uh, I would have liked because he is a very busy man and he is pressed for time. Uh, but we talk a lot about uh, fitness, injury prevention, stretching. Um, we talk about why he doesn't think anybody will ever be able to serve 160 miles an hour. Uh, we talk about Um, serve technique and a lot of flaws he sees at the club and the pro level in terms of technique. Uh, We talk a lot about um, training tools. So I ask him about using lacrosse balls or foam rollers and why he thinks that uh, they're not quite everything that uh, people say that they are. Um, We talk about what you should do before matches to warm up, what you should do after matches to Uh, make sure you are maintaining your mobility and your strength. We talk about off-court training uh, and a lot more. So again, this is a a pretty unique episode, uh, but it applies to everyone. Um, We're talking about physical fitness here. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation uh, with Dr. Mark Kovacs. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, we have Dr. Mark Kovacs on. Mark, uh, welcome. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. And uh, yeah, when I was um, kind of refreshing myself on your background to prepare for this episode, um, I feel like more than any other episode, I didn't know where to start because it, it might be easier to describe thing the, all the things you don't do than the things you do because you seem to do everything. You're a doctor, a physio a tennis coach, a tennis player. Um, so I wanted to start with uh, what do you tell people if you're like at the grocery store or on an airplane and somebody says, what do you do? What do you tell people uh, in that situation? Yeah, no, it's a, it's actually a really good question because you, you're sort of right. It, it crosses over 
Um, yeah. between the medical world, the training world, the fitness world, the coaching world, um, mm-hmm. and it sort of sits right in the middle of it. So what I say is I try to help people and be the bridge between multiple different folks involved in the development of athletic performance. So, you know, I don't coach full-time, I don't fitness train full-time, I, I, I don't research full-time, but I do pieces of those. And mm-hmm. I sort of work behind the scenes a lot of the time with coaches, with trainers, with athletes, with agents, with different groups, and try to sort of help put the pieces together. Because as we know, developing uh, athleticism, high-level professional athletes in all sports, it requires a big team and it requires multiple skill sets. And I sort of say, I, I sort of sit right right in between all of them and mm-hmm. make sure we leverage the best of everyone that we have involved and then I help with my skill sets where I can and then I outsource and recommend other folks where they need certain specialists in certain areas. Got it. Okay. So so have you built at this point just kind of a network of specialists that you can refer your athletes out to? Yeah, most definitely. Um, and the athletes okay. come in usually for assessments, one, two, three day in-depth analysis of where they're at, what they mm-hmm. need. Um, what pieces are missing? We evaluate technique. We evaluate blood work, genetics, training, uh, get as much data and diagnostics as we can to understand where they are currently and then, you know, figure out where what are the pieces that need to be improved. And okay. it's, it's really valuable and exciting for me because every athlete's different. I work across a few different sports. So I learned a lot in other sports outside of tennis and brought that information back to tennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you just get to work with a lot of great people, great coaches, great agents, great players. And it's just really a, a nice way to sort of provide value where we can. Awesome. And are you right now, are you working mostly with athletes at the professional level or, um, and if so, which sports? Sure. So right now, um, you know, I do quite a few one-offs as well, but the athletes that I've spending the most time with, I've got an all-star in Major League Baseball. I've got um, three ladies on the U.S. Women's National Team Soccer, okay. uh, w- work with a couple of professional golfers, uh, and then the tennis players as well, professional tennis players, high-level juniors, some collegiate athletes. Uh, and then every now and then I'll partner with coaches and help them with a, a senior athlete or someone who's super disciplined and competitive. I don't have much time to work with that population group, but I really do enjoy it, the recreational uh, you know, a competitive player because some of them are so are so passionate and excited and into the sport um, that you know if I if it's a coach I know, uh, I'll help them out in that, that situation as well. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. And you won a a national title in doubles at Auburn as well. Um, So we'll definitely uh, dive into some double strategy a little bit later on. Uh, But when I was going through your your website um, and kind of doing some research for this episode, uh, one of the posts that stood out to me, um, it's from back in 2019. Uh, You claim that we probably won't see a 160 mile an hour server. Uh, explain, uh, and I think Wired featured you uh, in their article um, about that. Explain the serve a little bit, uh, why we might have reached the upper limit of that, um, and what you kind of illustrated in that article. 
Yeah, so that um, that was pretty interesting. Um, the goal was to sort of get at an assessment based on projections of where we could go. And that was under the mm-hmm. assumption that athletes didn't grow significantly more height-wise. Two, the technology didn't change from today. Um, mm-hmm. So the odds are both of those are likely to change. So don't quote me on that in 30 years' time when we have all seven <laughs> yeah. players playing tennis and the rackets are you know, twice <laughs> as powerful as they are today. But yeah. if everything else holds, there is some physiological and biomechanical upper limits of what the body can do from a range perspective. So mm-hmm. how, much, how much range of motion and mobility do we have uh, from that perspective, the second big one is the um, strength training side of things. If tennis was a sport like baseball pitching, I would say we've got a bigger ceiling. We've got a higher ceiling we could get for serving. The reason being is you can just train for that one stroke. You can be like, all I want to do is get more powerful, throw or hit harder, and mm. everything else is built around that. The problem with yeah. tennis, we also need to play for three hours. You need to play every day. You need to hit forehands, backhands, volleys, and you need to be unbelievable endurance as well. So yeah. to have all those other components, you can't – because if we added 20 or 30 pounds to John Isner, he would serve harder. There's no doubt yeah. about that. But his okay. body would break down running around the court. So right. we can't just say we're going to add mass. We're going to add, you know, um, size and strength to someone because that could negatively impact their knees, their back, all the other things that we need from a tennis standpoint. So hmm. that's why we have sort of an upper projected limit on where that will go. But most servers, even at the professional level, are nowhere near optimizing their mechanics. It's actually mm. sad to see how many poor servers we have at the professional game, both on the men's and the women's side, mm-hmm. um, from a standpoint of consistent velocity of their upper limits, the ability to hit kick serves effectively, especially on the women's side, um, and then just general basic mechanical breakdowns that result in ab strains, lower back issues, shoulder um, problems that many of those are preventable by just improving technique. Interesting. Who are some of the players who are doing it right? I mean, so you've got a lot of great servers. Obviously, on the women's side, you've got Serena that has got a great service motion. Ash Barty has a great service motion. Again, mm-hmm. both those players are, you know, one's fully retired and one's sort of playing here and there. Um, yeah. So Madison Keys has a really good motion most of the time. Um, okay. So you've got a few there. Sam Stoza, again, getting getting a little bit older, but great mechanics, great range of motion. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got a few there that are, are, are clearly you know, at, at the top of the game from that perspective. Uh, on the men's side, uh, you've got John Isner, who's got phenomenal technique, uh, outstanding yeah. fit, uh, technique on his serve. Carlos Alcaraz has a great service motion. His serve is only going to get better and better and better. His coaches at a junior level did an outstanding job, especially coming from Spain where a lot of the time serves aren't as prioritized uh, historically as ground strokes. So Mm -hmm. great that he's coming aboard with such a good serve at such a young age. So you've got a a lot of the players coming through are doing a better job. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. Federer's serve 
motion is great as well. He's got great placement. He doesn't hit the serve potentially as hard as he could, um, partly because he's strategized accuracy. There's always a speed accuracy trade-off. Right. And, you know, he's taken two, three, four, five miles an hour off his max serves to make sure that he places it more effectively. And he's one of the leaders in aces um, over mm-hmm. the last two decades. Uh, yeah. without having one of the fastest serves on tour. So there's there's hope for everyone out there that may not have the biggest serve. He's still got a very good serve pace-wise, but sure. it's not in the top 10 or 20% of top service from a speed perspective. Yeah. But, you know, you, you all know his data of aces and unreturnables and serve plus one um, winners. And mm-hmm. so he sets up his game his style ball, based on yeah. placement. Right. What what about um uh as far as the pros um and even players all the way down to the club level, uh you said you see a lot of biomechanical issues with their technique. Does that usually start kind of from the ground up? Is that how you like to think about it? And what are some of the most common issues you do see um with the serve technique? If it's uh, and you can categorize that by pro level versus club, or if it's the same, um, answer that however you'd like. Yeah, no, that's no, a great question. And, you know, I'm, I'm trained in sort of the scientific method. It's, you know, I, that's my background. So a lot of biomechanics and physiolo- physiological training. And mm-hmm. from that perspective, you've got to find the source of the problem or the source of the issue, not only go to um, the symptom. And unfortunately, tennis coaching historically, and we're talking 20, 30, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, worked, worked the reverse. We actually went from contact, coaches did typically, and worked backwards. So what happens at contact and then try to figure out stuff from there, yeah. which is actually not the right way to do it. That's that's sort of a backwards-looking model, um, mm-hmm. whereas a forwards-looking model is let's start at the beginning of the stroke, whether it's a serve or a ground stroke or whatever, but let's say it's a serve. You got to start at the beginning. How do they load? And you know, we have an eight-stage model that we evaluate the serve under. And stage three is lower body loading. And there's a precise point um, in every person's serve when you have utilized or maximized your lower body load, and you start to shift from loading or storing of energy in the lower body to starting to release that energy. And there's a, a specific moment in time where that shifts. And the best servers optimize that position. The poor servers don't get into that position effectively. And if you don't get that position right, and that's pretty early, that's the knee bend, the trophy type position. If you don't get into that position right, it doesn't matter what you do the rest of the serve. You're never going to maximize your serve. You can still make decent contact. You'll still have um, a serve that can generate some pace. But it's mm. going to come from the wrong area, and it's not going to be as optimized as you would like. So we definitely always start from the ground up, like you like you mentioned, because mm. that's where we get all our power from. Ground reaction forces are water. Mm. It's the only way we can produce a lot of power, um, a lot of force into the ball. But we have to drive down to drive up. And yeah. we talk a lot about... For every reaction, we have an equal and opposite reaction, you know, basic high school physics that everyone's probably heard. But in tennis, not enough people take that into account when we're hitting ground strokes or when we're serving. 
if you want to go up and out into the court, which is the ideal way to do it in serving, you have mm-hmm. to store your energy back and down in a reverse direction. And most people don't do that. Most people either squat straight down, and then when they come up, they have to over-rotate early and collapse and do all these things that we see at contact with poor servers. And it's a real easy fix if you know where the problem is. If you don't know where the problem is, like everything else, it's really hard to fix it. So we see the same issues at the recreational level as well as the professional level. The thing at the recreational level is we see a lot more fundamental flaws at the beginning of the motion. So Mm. most of the pros start okay, and then there's little little issues that happen as the serve gets closer to contact that they start breaking down. So you don't get this complete breakdown. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no real pro that completely breaks down on the serve. They're just inefficient. Whereas at the rec level, we could have a grip issue. If you're, if you're using a forehand grip instead of a continental or a weak forehand grip, you're going to really, really struggle to get in the right positions. It doesn't matter what you do. If you don't jump, for example, there's many recreational players that serve and don't jump. We have a slightly different model from a body position. It's the same, but how we drive through the back leg and how we come out of it is slightly different. So those are the two biggest differences. And then we do look at physical aspects of the serve. Do you have weak or poor internal shoulder rotation? If you do, you can't really get ideal long axis rotation, which is actually after serve, but it's really the changing from what most people think of supination to pronation. Uh, Mm -hmm. That is something that if you have poor internal shoulder rotation, it's really hard to hit a good kick serve, and it's really hard to get the max velocity, and there's nothing much you can do until you physically improve that position. And if you can't improve that position, you've got to work on workarounds. We look at the same thing with thoracic mobility, and that's the top part of the spine. If you don't have good range there, it's really hard to get into the positions that the pros get into. So I always talk when I'm speaking with some of these older players that really want to have a good kick serve or they're working on hitting harder serves. Like Mm -hmm. you, You realize we can get you to a certain level, but unless you physically improve your body, you're not going to be able to hit serves like Federer or Serena. You have to be able to get into certain positions. They can get into those positions. Some of these older players that have had surgeries or long-term injuries or something like that, they really have to realize there are some limitations to to their upper limit. That doesn't mean they can't significantly improve, and they actually get the biggest excitement out of improving their serve speed by three or four miles an hour just by loading Right. That makes sense. And I think, um, yeah, I think those eight positions, I think, uh, Warren had Warren Pretorius has some of those, uh, images. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. I know you've used some of those as well. The images of Fetter kind of loading, accelerating. Um, so I'll link to that. So people, yeah, that can, would be uh, great. You know, you know, we've worked closely with Warren for many years and, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's being utilized a lot in the education or the teaching of the serve now, which has been good because we did a paper, a research paper on this probably about 12 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really just trying to standardize the understanding of where the power comes from, where the, where you need to load, how to load effectively and how to release the load. And if you do it right, the fundamentals are consistent. And a lot of people overcoach style and players as well. Players are like, oh, I want to do what 
Federer did, or I want to do what Serena does with how she starts, or something yeah. that has no relevance on the outcome, which mm-hmm. is style. And that's fine. You can have all sorts of style, <laughs> yeah. but the fundamentals are consistent. Right. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, so I want to dial it back real quick. Tell us, uh, what's your story? How did you get started in tennis? Um, obviously, you went to med school and became a doctor at some point. So uh, take it back to the beginning. Um, what's, your, what's your story uh, as far yeah, as tennis so goes? Yeah, so where I started, yeah, I, I mean, I started playing tennis like a lot of people when I was really young. I played four different sports growing up. I played basketball, cricket, Australian rules, football, soccer when I was real young, and tennis. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up in Australia, so Australian rules, football, and cricket aren't that popular um, in the U.S., but everywhere else, it's pretty yeah. big sport. And um, so – Got reasonably good at tennis pretty young, so gravitated. Where in Australia did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Melbourne, so I actually grew up about 10 or 15 minutes from the Australian Open. So that was fortunate as well to be around a Grand Slam tournament every summer. You would get to watch it. I actually ball-boyed for some Davis Cup ties at Kuyong when they still played professional tennis at Kuyong. Um, So I was was lucky enough to be around – good players and good coaches from a pretty young age. Uh, my dad played and the reason I played was because he played like, you know, um, league matches on the weekend for, you know, and he would take me to the courts and I'd run around and, you know, there was no babysitting. You just sort of run around the outside yeah. of the courts for a few hours, wait till they finish. And then him or someone else on the team would be nice enough to hit with me for like 20 minutes at the end. And that's sort mm-hmm. of how I learned. Uh, and then played national tournaments, uh, grew up around the same time as Leighton Hewitt. We played our first match together at the 10 and under nationals at the time. I think I was nine, he was eight. Um, okay. and we played about 20 times or so throughout our junior career. Um, so was, nice. was doing reasonably well, played the ITF juniors, played the US Open juniors, Australian Open juniors. Um, played doubles with Andy Roddick at the US Open Juniors. So it was around a lot of good players. Marty Fish was involved at that time as well. And there was a lot of other, you know, there was Federer's, uh, EOS of Federer's in the tournament. You had, um, you know, Del Bandy and a ton, a ton of good players that you were always around. Um, yeah. So you saw it, you know, and I was not obviously at their level, but I was top 50 in the in the world. So you got to play with them all. They would beat up on me pretty good, but it was still, yeah. you know, you you thought you always had a chance. And at that point, you didn't know who they were. They were right. like, they were just like your the guy that you needed to beat across the net. You didn't realize yeah. you were going to be up against some of the best players of all time, number ones in the world, <laughs> Hall of Famers. Um, yeah. They were literally your peers. Uh, so that was neat. And then went to college. Um, thought I was going to be there six months, you know, 20 something years later, I'm still around, um, in, in the U S I thought mm-hmm. I was going to just go for a short period of time. Uh, was fortunate to win an NCAA title in doubles, uh, played really shortly, uh, professionally. Uh, I had mm-hmm. actually, it was having shoulder problems my freshman year in college. Um, mm-hmm. and back then they really didn't have great diagnostics and also I was at a big football school and tennis was not a high priority on any of the medical folks uh radar so I was misdiagnosed for a couple years it was sort of like hey you got just kind of tendonitis nondescript diagnosis just ice it you know stretch it you know strengthen it a little bit and just suck it up type of thing and basically (laughs) did that for nearly three years 
That's and, great advice. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but that was pretty common back then because they didn't fully know what was going on. Um, right. And I had a bit of a unique situation. I had a nerve that split, so nerve defrayed, subscap oh, wow. nerve defrayed, um, which resulted in over time. This didn't happen all overnight. It was a multi-year issue. Um, mm-hmm. And then you had a label tear, which is a typical shoulder kind of rotator cuff type environment as well. So the labrum tore. You had one of the rotator cuff muscles tore, and then you had a bicep tendon tear. So, yeah, you didn't have just one thing, um, yeah. but that's usually part what happens if you have one issue and you don't fix it and you just keep playing on it for two or three years. So pretty much midway through school, I started getting really interested in the body because of my issues, and I was like, why is this happening? We didn't have great training, obviously, at that stage. It wasn't like it is now where you know a lot more, and that's mm-hmm. what got me into this whole field. And I worked as a strength coach initially outside of tennis. The moment I finished playing tennis, I didn't really want to be around the sport for a couple of years. So mm-hmm. I went and tried to learn and, and work with the fastest athletes in the world. I worked with sprinters originally, some NFL wide receivers, stuff like that. I wanted to learn about speed training. So that was great. I got to spend time um, with NFL combine prep some of the fastest sprinters in the world, learned from four or five of the best sprint coaches, went through all the USA track and field sprint education camps and things like that. And that was really helpful because that really introduced the physics of movement. Before that, I didn't know much about biomechanics of movement. No one in tennis ever talked about that stuff. Um, Mm. So you really understood every step matters, joint angles matter, loading matters, all this stuff really matters. It makes a big, big difference. And in those sports, that's huge. Tennis has so many variables that you can't always say one thing's going to make all the difference. Whereas in a hundred meter sprint, one thing can make all the difference between you winning and losing. So that was pretty neat. And then got pulled back a little bit into tennis um, and really then wanted to understand the why a bit more. So I went back to school, did my master's and did my PhD um, Mm -hmm. in physiology with a lot of biomechanics involved in it and thought I was going to be an academic researcher, really loved the research process, you know, developing research studies, testing theories, um, getting knowledge, things like that. But pretty early on, I spent about six months full-time as a professor in an academic environment. And I really miss the coaching side and the training side and working with athletes and coaches in the field. Mm-hmm. And back then you couldn't really do both. Now it's a few more people are doing both. But back then it was like you were either a coach or you were a researcher. You didn't really get that crossover. Um, right. And then I had an opportunity to work with the USTA. They were moving to Boca Raton to set up their player development department there they were moving from Key Biscayne and they were going to house some of the best young athletes um, in the country. And mm-hmm. they wanted to have someone sort of head up sports science for that purpose. And, you know, I was you know fortunate enough to, you know, be considered, get that position. And, you know, I, I was there for about six years and we had all the, all the guys and girls that you basically see on TV now, yeah, that was Riley yeah. Opelka, Tommy Paul, Francis Tiafo, Taylor Fritz group. They were down there. Some of them lived there full time um, and some of them were down there about a third of the year for camps and training and stuff like that. You know, Madison Keys was down there. Sloan Stevens was down there. It was, it was 
pretty cool to have that many good players all basically living together, training together, being around because they mm-hmm. feed off each other. You see who's got the athleticism. You see who's dropping back a little bit. You see who's technically breaking down. Um, so it's a really, really good environment when you get that many good players all together. Um, yeah. So that was the tennis side. That was sort of how I got into the tennis world and things like that. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so, so I want to talk about uh, general kind of fitness and, and injury prevention. And let's um, let's set aside like the pro level stuff because most people listening are probably not professional athletes. Uh, but I know you've got you've got a lot of great content on your website. Um, a couple. Uh, several courses, including, um, the bulletproof arm and the bulletproof hip, which, uh, I haven't taken, but they look amazing. And I'm, I think I probably should take those. Um, but, uh, talk a little bit about for the club level player. Um, how should we be getting our body ready for a match? Uh, how should we be thinking about off court training, um, things like that with, you know, keeping in mind that these are people who have, another full-time profession. Yeah, no, I totally understand. I do probably about two camps a year where I work with sort of that group of player. It's usually mm-hmm. a 3-0 to a 4-5 level player that yeah. is super passionate about the sport. They want to get better. They want to continue to improve. But like you said, they have either you know a full-time job or they they don't necessarily have five six hours a day to train and compete so you have to be strategic and smart and efficient in how you do your off-court training so Mm -hmm. typically what i always recommend is you know you you have these buckets of areas you need to get better at one is mobility mobility is one of those ones as someone ages decreases usually the fastest Mm -hmm. and it's really easy to improve if you do it consistently you have to be consistent so we spend a lot of time on mobility especially on the areas we know tennis players are poor at hip flexors most tennis players aren't very flexible internal range of motion of your hip you need a lot of work there internal rotation of your shoulder is another area you need good range and then thoracic mobility or the upper part of your spine you need to be able to rotate well and you need to be able to flex and extend well if you can just focus on those areas you will yeah. see immediate improvement in how your body functions and moves so that's one area uh then you've got the bucket of strength and strength training is a broad term, um, and unfortunately, it means so many different things to different people. Some people think it means squatting 300 pounds with a barbell on your back. Other yeah. people think it means using bands to do re- light movements. Um, mm-hmm. Some people think it's just body weight. Some people think I've got to have like a f- big gym membership to get any value. Um, it's really a combination of all that stuff. You want yeah. to be doing some heavy lifting um, because as athletes age, they lose muscle mass. It's called sarcopenia, loss of muscle mass. And usually you get about a 10% reduction every decade after 40 in muscle mass. So mm-hmm. you can reverse that very easily with heavy strength training. And when we say heavy, we mean relatively heavy to you. doesn't mean that you're sure. doing – you know, one rep maxes or something like that, you usually, but you are doing like six or eight reps with a pretty heavy weight. 
If you're doing mm. a set of six, you probably don't want to do weight that you could do for eight reps or more. So if you're saying you're going to do a set of six, it should be pretty close to a six or a seven or an eight rep max. That okay. type of idea. So you're within like a couple of reps of failure. Exactly. And most okay. people don't do that. Most people, they'll do six reps, but they can probably do 12. Yeah. You know? So that's the heavy strength piece of it. And you can't okay. do many exercises like that. You may do one or two movements like that for three sets of six. And then you'll do a lot of other movements that is more muscular endurance, meaning that you'll do reps of 12 to 20, where you try to make sure that the muscles can function over a repeated amount of time with some load. So mm -hmm. we sort of break our programming up that way. Uh, then we want to do loading for joint health. Like it, the research has changed a lot in the past. It used to be thought of, hey, lifting weights can hurt the joints. And if you go too heavy and you go too deep for certain movements, it potentially can. But sure. if you've got tendon problems, if you've got knee problems, um, if, you, if you've got hip type stuff and it's not structural, meaning that you don't need a surgery, but you've just got pain, mm. actually loading those areas in a very controlled, lower range of motion way actually helps you feel better. It reduces pain. It strengthens the area and things like that. So the data is really good. And many of them are either eccentrically loaded movements, which is force or tension under a lengthening environment or isometric movements, which is think about a wall sit. If you sit on the mm -hmm. wall, like a traditional wall sit, that's an isometric movement. There's, the joint angles aren't moving. So you're not putting strain on the joints from a movement standpoint, but you're loading the area in a controlled way. And there's a lot okay. of different isometric movements you can do. So that's this sort of strength bucket. So we've got mobility, strength. Then we need some endurance, obviously. Don't just mm -hmm. play tennis to get in shape. We always say, do you play tennis yeah. to get in shape or do you get in shape to play tennis? You need both. Tennis mm -hmm. is a great workout, so you do get in good shape by playing. But if you're playing competitively, and when I say that, it's at least twice a week um, or more, you've got to do some off-court training. You've got to do, you know, and as you get older, you may not want to do a lot of impact. So pool work is really good. Bike um, is very good. You know, so some of these things, ellipticals, things that unload you a little bit so you're not pounding and just going running. And normally what I recommend from all tennis players is intermittent uh, interval work, meaning don't just go run on a treadmill for three miles or go cycle for 45 minutes straight at the same cadence. Go up and down. We know from playing tennis your heart rate goes through peaks and valleys in a match. Mm -hmm. You go to 170 or 160 during a point, and then it drops to 120 or 130 in between points. Yeah. That's how you should train with your off-court in tennis. We call I call it tennis-specific endurance training, and it's specifically getting heart rate up above, say, a 150, 160, 170 range for most people, somewhere in that ballpark, and then it drops to 110 to 130, and then you go again. So we base a lot of our training on heart rate if you have access to a heart rate monitor, which most people sort of do now. They have It's not expensive. It's just whether you know how to use it. And mm -hmm. then the second piece, if you don't, we just work our work-to-rest ratios like tennis. So if you're on the bike, we do minute intervals, but you do, say, 20 seconds of work, 40 seconds of rest. You know, okay. that's a, you know, so it's real simple for people to figure out. 
that's a one to two work to rest ratio for every one second of work um you do two seconds of rest so and that, that 40 seconds of rest you're still biking but you're just not going as hard is that right yeah so you've got two okay. options one is you can stop completely like just okay. take your feet off the pedals and just chill or you can then what we will do is we'll either reduce the resistance to zero if it's a resistance-based bike, um, and then you'll reduce reduce the resistance to zero and your legs sort of spin, but you're not doing much. So yeah. exactly. Okay. Uh, and we have a whole series of protocols we utilize with players at all levels. It could be 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. It could be 10 seconds on, 50 seconds off with more resistance. Yeah. But one minute intervals so you can make it easy for you to think about works really well. So that's the yeah. tennis endurance piece of it. And then you've got the whole bucket of either prehab or injury prevention. That's all those smaller muscles, all the specific things that we do for the shoulder, the core, the hip, the ankle, uh, that we try to make sure the lower back that we target specifically. And that's usually a daily or every second day um, routine. And it varies from day to day. But if you do that as a recreationally competitive player, you're going to really give yourself the best chance of success uh, on the tennis court because you've hit all the major drivers physically that you need to be good at. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, so wh what do you think about how do some of the, and you mentioned some of these already, but how do training tools play a role in this? You, you talked about um, using like a bike or an elliptical um, I'm asking this kind of selfishly because I, I've, uh, got like six different types of resistance bands that I use. Uh, I have a lacrosse ball here right now, um, a foam roller, another room, stuff like that. So how do you, um, use training tools as part of the, the protocol? Yeah. So, you know, we have an institute in Atlanta where we work with our pro athletes and we have tons of toys you know mm -hmm. and we work with a lot of different companies for testing them for their purposes in-house research um so we have technology-based tools we have light therapy we have um vibration training devices we have uh artificial intelligence strength training equipment which is like pretty futuristic where it actually wow. changes the resistance during the rep so you okay. can increase and decrease the resistance per rep. Um, so we do a lot of that stuff where we use technology, um, yeah. trying to be innovative, learning from what's out there and also giving critical feedback to these companies about this doesn't work the way it should or you need to change the force vectors here or you need to change the angle of attack or this or that. But for mm -hmm. the general person out there, if you're looking at it and there's thousands of products out there that you can use, right. biggest thing is you've got to ask yourself, does does the science make sense and does it do what the marketing says it is supposed to do? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things out there. You know, you mentioned a few, yeah. lacrosse ball and foam roll. They're very inexpensive tools that mm -hmm. what do they actually do? You lie on it or you sit on it or you push pressure, you're putting pressure on your body. So you're yeah. creating a pressure gradient to hopefully – you know, it's called um, myofascial release is what they use that term for things like that. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of devices that do that. The question is, does it make you feel better or does it improve whatever it is you're trying to improve? For most mm -hmm. people, it makes them feel a bit better after it because there's blood flow to the area and there's some type of pressure that's being applied. And when you release, release the pressure, it feels mm -hmm. great. 
Yeah. But most of those modalities don't necessarily fix the underlying cause of the knot or the pain or the restriction or the trigger point that's that's acting up. So you've yeah. got to address why what's happening in your biomechanics that's causing it. What's happening when you run or jump or load or hit tennis balls? Why does that same area tighten up and stiffen up and get knotted up every time you play? Doing okay. foam rolling on any of these type of activities feels good, but it doesn't fix the problem. Ask mm-hmm. yourself most times, you foam roll in the same area a lot, but you still got to keep foam rolling it because you haven't fixed <laughs> yeah. the problem. So right. you've got to go then a, a layer deeper and you've got to start using, um, you know, strategies to, you know, correct, which is more the modalities. So there's laser therapy type techniques. There's electrical muscle stimulation that can help with that. There's soft tissue massage and the various soft tissue therapies that are out there, um, mm-hmm. things like that to really relieve whether it's scar tissue buildup, whether it's adhesions, whether it's um, fascia challenges. And for folks that may not know some of these terms, it's pretty much all those things that make you not a tight and and you you know those spots you feel that you just feel that doesn't feel right, it's restricted, it hurts when I push on it, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so you got to get at that with trained people that know what they're doing and know how to relieve some of that. Mm-hmm. And then once you start loosening that up, then you've got to really do a good job of strengthening the area around it, make sure that it's mobile enough to perform the activities you'll need it to perform. And if you do that, you can correct pretty much everything that isn't a structural deformity. And when we say structural deformity, there's many people that have bones that are that are growing a certain way that, say, for the hip, there's certain things that happen at the hip that make you go bone on bone and it's just yeah. genetics and that makes it really hard. You may need a surgery at some point. Um, yeah. If you lose all your cartilage around your knee, um, you may need something more advanced than what we're talking about. But for most people, there's a lot of these modalities that make a huge, huge impact and can really, really help. We also spend a lot of time on recovery, meaning that passive and active recovery techniques. There's a lot of things out there now and nearly all of them have to do with blood flow, increasing Mm -hmm. blood flow to the area. I talk a lot about the concept Mm -hmm. of what you're trying to do after activity is to move stagnant blood or deoxygenated blood, blood that's lacking in oxygen from an area, let's say the calf. You're trying to move it out of the calf, back up to the heart, and then take from the heart good oxygenated blood back down to the calf and give it the nutrients that is in oxygenated blood. And the Mm -hmm. more you can do that process, the more consistent that process can be, the quicker you're going to usually heal if there's a minor issue that's going on and the better people feel. So Mm -hmm. there's a few different ways to get at that. One is through temperature gradient changes. So the simplest way is jump in the shower, put it on as hot as you can handle, Um, without burning yourself, obviously, but go make it as hot as you can handle and then do that for about a minute and then put the temperature on as cold as it can be. So turn the hot water off and put the cold water on and do that for a minute and just go back and forth, minute on, minute off, Mm. hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. So this is for after a match, for Mm -hmm. example? After a match at night before you go to bed. um, It's just really, really good because what it does is the hot water vasodilates 
the blood that you know you, you you've got you know the capillaries it expands mm-hmm. it so it moves it through a little quicker and then mm-hmm. when you cool it off really fast and you kind of feel cold you vasoconstrict so mm-hmm. what that does is it it increases and decreases the vessels yeah. moving the blood through and it's a pumping mechanism so it increases that pumping capacity that's a temperature based gradient whereas you also have a pressure based gradient or air and think about those recovery boots they're p- becoming pretty popular now there's yeah normatex there's recovery boots there's rapid reboot there's five or six different companies that make a similar product mm-hmm. uh, and you wear the boots on your legs or you can do this some that are made for the arms as well and they're based on the exact same principle as we just talked about, vasoconstriction, vasodilation, but they do it based on air and pressure. So it squeezes mm. really, really tight for a, a, a certain number of seconds, and then it releases completely. So you get this blood that pumps in and out, in and out, in and out. So that's a that's a air or a pressure gradient. Then we also have electrical muscle stimulation, which is uh, units that we use a lot for travel purposes on planes and in cars because you can have it for multiple hours and you just get a constant if it, if you get the right equipment, non fatiguing um, pulse pulsing action, which just constantly keeps that muscle moving without fatiguing, so it contracts but it's at a very low frequency. So it's just enough to contract, but not enough to wear it out or get it tired. And then what that does, that just keeps blood moving. It just keeps it going through that area. And that's really good post-surgery. It's really good um, if you've got, you know, let's say you got hit by something or you fell and you bruised up, really good for stuff like that. Or just your daily uh, activities and you just want to recover faster. So those are the big three or four kind of recovery strategies that are easily accessible, and they're mm-hmm. all based somewhat on a similar concept of increasing blood flow. Um, and then light therapy is the sort of fourth big one, which um, is is becoming very popular for certain things. So we mm-hmm. sort of incorporate all that with our athletes, try to make sure that we're giving them the best chance of success on the recovery side. Okay. And then where does like for your average club player after a match, uh, where does stretching fall into this? Should they be stretching after a match? And if so, like what type of stretching should they be doing? Yeah, it's it's a really, really good question. And stretching is interesting because stretching like strength training means so many different things to so many different people. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking stretching, you you have your broad brackets. You've got static stretching, which is usually touch your toes, hold it for 30 seconds, that type of stretch. And then mm-hmm. you have dynamic stretching, which is more let's stretch through a full range of motion while we're loading the the, the muscle in the joint. So mm-hmm. you're, you're actively doing it and your heart rate's higher and you're moving through fuller ranges of motion. For most people, that dynamic stretching should happen before they play, get get the the muscles warm, load the joints and and the tendons, get the athlete to feel um, a little pressure or force going through the body, which is really good to prepare them. Post-match stretching is really important to try to bring back range of motion that was lost during play. For example, Mm -hmm. we did a couple studies on um, junior players and professional players looking at internal shoulder rotation after they play a three-set match. And the internal shoulder uh, range is actually decreased between about 7 to 10% after a three-hour match. 
just hmm. by serving and hitting so forehand. So you're, you're doing this. So does that mm -hmm. mean they, they like can't go as far this way? Correct. They can't uh, get. So if this is their normal range before they start the max, let's say it's a 90 degree range. Yeah. So zero 90. Um, yeah. They can only get to about there. So they can only get to say 80 degrees instead of 90 degrees after the match. Okay. So, and that's very common because it stiffens up to sort of protect the area partly so you don't go mm -hmm. too far and as you fatigue, you don't go further, things like mm -hmm. that. So it's not a negative by itself that you're tightening up while you're playing. That's sure. somewhat of a protective mechanism for the joint. The problem becomes if that happens every day and you never do anything to reverse it over the course of a year – you actually lose that for good. That comes back after 24 hours. You, you don't lose 10% for life. You right. lose it short term. And then most of it comes back after a day or two. That's why yeah. baseball pictures typically take five days off is for that real reason. They got to mm. wait till that recovers and that gets back. Um, that's part of the reason it takes so long. Um, okay. But they're doing stretching and they're doing a ton of other modalities to help the process. But in general, doing some form of stretching on the areas that tighten up is really valuable to get the range back. Doesn't mean that it's going to help you necessarily, you know, speed up, you know, that recovery process completely because mm -hmm. that's got there's other factors that are going on. There's muscle damage, micro tears. Um, okay. There's a little bit of lactate buildup that you've got to clear out. Um, that happens over a course of an hour or so. So just so people know, lactate isn't really the reason you get sore the next day. It's mainly the micro tears to the muscle, um, the damage, and that's usually caused by unaccustomed eccentric exercise, which just means unaccustomed, you're not used to it. And eccentric is the loading aspect. So when you're playing tennis, every time you slide into a forehand or every time you push hard into the ground to stop before you hit a ground stroke, that ground contact is a form of an eccentric load. And your body's just not used to doing that a lot of the time with those forces in those positions. That's why you feel sore after you play. Okay. Awesome. Um, so, you know, I've got a lot more questions on that topic. Um, so maybe we do a part two at some point. Uh, but I do want to dive into double strategy a little bit. Um, so let's talk about uh, working with your doubles partner. So I, I watched um, yesterday and today, I watched your webinar with Jorge Capistani, um, which was a great uh, doubles webinar. And one thing that you said that stood out to me was uh, getting in the mind of your partner is a huge skill. So talk a little bit about what that means and how that relates to uh, doubles and working with your partner. Yeah, to me, that's probably the biggest challenge that you have at the recreational level. The pros have mm -hmm. it as well. That's why they jump around partners so much. But yeah. at the recreational level, everyone's so concerned about themselves and I've got to put the ball on the court. I've got to stand in the right spot. I've got to make sure I take care of my little world, my isolated world, that you mm -hmm. forget that your partner has so many different issues just like you do, that they're worried about. And if you yeah. can help them understand or be okay with certain things, it makes your existence a lot easier. The first biggest one is your partner should never feel pressure from you, meaning that mm -hmm. 
they may be making errors. They may be in the wrong spot. They may be, you know, hitting the wrong ball at the wrong time, but they know they probably messed up themselves. They don't need you telling them that they messed up. They don't need you, you know, looking over and giving them a nasty look and things like that. Because think about that. If you were them, you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want your partner telling you that you did something wrong or telling you that, you know, this was bad or even just giving you that look that everyone knows. Everyone's had that look where the partner looks at them like, how did you miss that easy right. ball? Um, so that's a huge value to good partnerships is there isn't that um, spoken or unspoken pressure that is put on each other. And most of the time it's unspoken. It's sort of body language issues. It's walking around the, the, the other sides of the net and not communicating after you lose a game. Little things like that go a long way to make people feel uncomfortable. Second is most of the time partners don't have the same personality types. You've got a super type A extroverted, you know, loves confrontation type person that is happy to, you know, get into verbal disputes and and, and confrontation yeah. with everyone. And then you've got the partner many times who's more passive, doesn't like confrontation, doesn't want that. They're, that's not what makes them tick. Mm-hmm. And those two many times play together. And if they play together – then that's where a lot of challenges happen because the confrontational person feeds off that, needs that, needs to create some drama, needs to create some excitement, and that's what gets them. That's why they play. They play for yeah. that. And then the the other person is like doesn't like that environment. Um, and so sometimes that's where you see a lot of these these tension points is someone's expecting their partner to respond the same way they do to certain situations and they think they're helping and you Mm. see that all the time where the partner's trying to help they're trying to say the right thing in their mind they're trying to act the right way but it's the right way for them and how they would like to be spoken to or responded with but it's not the right way for their partner because they've got a completely different personality type so i always say you should do partner profiling when you play with someone should always mm-hmm. do a quick personality profile, one of the short ones. Just figure out who's who and how you like to be spoken to and what gets you excited, what gives you energy versus what takes away your energy. And make sure that if it's reverse of who you are and what you like, that you take that into account when you're speaking to your partner, when you're working with them. Because the X's and O's of where to stand and how to hit and strategy and all that, yeah, mm-hmm. there's some pretty finite pretty consistent rules, especially at the recreational level, that's going to give you the best chance of success percentage wise. Mm -hmm. But that's not usually why partnerships are good or bad. Partnerships are usually good and bad because of how you communicate when stuff goes wrong, not when stuff goes right. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Jorge's um, 20 questions. I I had him on the podcast last year and we talked about those. Um, So we'll link to those in the show notes, but that's a great way to do kind of that partner profile. Um, and I'd never thought about it like that type A and B way. A couple of my partners over the last couple of years have, are coming to mind that I like had trouble meshing with. Not that we would get into fights, but I, I didn't feel like motivated to to try super hard or like I just felt a little bit off mentally. Um, and it's because maybe they were a little bit more maybe confrontational with the other team or something because that's just not my style. Um, and that isn't right or wrong, but maybe I just should play with a different type of partner or at least chat with that person about it, uh, beforehand next time we do play. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a huge, 
issue across all leagues. Yeah. I'm in Atlanta, and Atlanta has the most amount of recreational competitive players in the country. And they, yeah. you know, they play leagues, and there's leagues going on every night of the week, and there's so much competition. And you just see it. I just walk sometimes, and it's really fun to watch from an outsider perspective. And these people, super passionate. They want to win so bad, but – many times you can see that their partners are really uncomfortable with them. So you've got to look in the mirror sometimes. And I always tell people videotape your matches at least once or twice a month minimum, Mm -hmm. just to look at how you look on court, what you say, how you walk, what your body language looks like. And many times when you look at yourself and your body language, a lot of the time they look at that and say, man, I wouldn't want to play with that person because their mm-hmm. shoulders are drooped, they're stomping around, they're giving bad looks to their partners, and they don't even realize they're doing that. They're not meaning anything bad by it. It's just that's how they're responding. Right. Yeah, so communicating beforehand about how you want to be uh, communicated with, I guess, is the the kind of fix for that, and, and nobody seems to do it. Um, it's crazy. Uh, so I know you need to run here in a few minutes. Um, maybe we do a part two at some point because um, I, I definitely have a lot – a lot more we can cover, but I want to go through these uh, rapid fire questions. So uh, what is your favorite tennis book? Tennis book? Um, it's a gr- it's actually a really good question. I got a lot of like old school books. So I got this book of um, Don Budge. I think it's on my shelf. Um, it was on my shelf at one point. I don't know if I, if I can see it right now, but it's like from the 1930s. It was yeah. an instructional book. Um, and 90% of it's still valid today. So that's, that's kind of cool. Um, and then we've got a ton of medical books. I've written six books, so I probably should pitch my books and say they're unbelievable. They're um, the best. <laughs> but, but some of the old, old time books are actually really well done. Um, so I, I would definitely look at some of the older ones as well as some of the newer ones. Cool. Uh, what's your favorite non-tennis book? Yeah, it's, that's, that's, that's a great question. When I say I read a lot of words in my life, because I read a lot of research journals and stuff like that. I don't yeah. read as many traditional books. Um, but I actually like the book Power. It's, it's basically a semi research based book uh, talking about power differentials between mm-hmm. people and gives a bunch of examples. Really interesting book. If you if you've ever read that, it's like an orange covered book. It's sold few, you know, a lot, a lot of copies over the last thirty years. Um, so th- that one's really good. Um, Billie Jean King's book, "Pressure Is a Privilege," um, which is mm-hmm. sort of a you know, non-instructional book. Um, really loved Agassiz's book. It's pretty open, you know, open. Yeah. So it's like, you know, some of those tennis-related non-instructional books are good. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's so many others. I really like biographies of athletes of you know, successful business people, kind of what makes people tick. Yeah. Yeah. I like those too. Uh, What's your favorite tournament? It's a great question. It really is. I mean, (laughs) they all have so many unique parts to it. That's why it's hard. It's hard for me to say, well, growing up, Wimbledon was the tournament because it was, it was sort of Wimbledon and it's got that prestige and everything. And I still think Wimbledon's probably the top of the list. I love the U.S. Open because of the atmosphere. I mean, it's just different. It's just loud. It's obnoxious. It's New York. It's all that stuff. Yeah. It's hot. 
stinky. It's got mm-hmm. all those components of like you got you got to be an impressive player to win the U.S. Open. It takes it takes a certain personality to win the U.S. Open. Um, Indian Wells is the most chill from a big tournament standpoint. I mean, if people haven't gone to Indian Wells for just for the atmosphere, that's a great event. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of great tournaments in Europe that a lot of people don't know about. Some of the smaller ones, um, you know, Basel's really nice. Um, you've got the Stockholm, the indoor tournament there, played at the King's Club. Um, mm-hmm. There's a ton of those, like, smaller events that are really, really good. The best court is probably the court in Rome um, that has all the statues around it. Yeah. Um, so there's there's so many. Tennis is unique like that because it's so global that you can, you can go to a tournament, you know, every week of the year for five years and not see all the tournaments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of options. Uh, how can we make pro doubles more popular? Yeah, it's 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 a really really it should be more popular. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's what people play, and it's actually more action. It's quicker. There's more kind of quick fire environments. To me, I mean, I think there's there's two ways. Obviously, if you get the best singles players to play more, people will watch more. So that's yeah. one option. Indian Wells doubles is always one of the best events of the year because they all play. It's the only tournament all year where the top players play doubles. So right. that's that's like the low-hanging fruit. Combine mm-hmm. combine the rankings, make everyone play everything. The doubles guys would hate me for saying that because it <laughs> takes away a lot of jobs for them. But yeah. if you really short, in the short term wanted to make the biggest, quickest impact, that would be one. The second would be try some standalone doubles events, which – is risky in the short term, but I think you would yeah. see some benefit from that. Doubles only events, um, put them in certain markets, expose tennis to those markets and show how much fun it is. The other thing doubles players probably need to do a better job of and tennis in the sport, golf does this way better, is the pro-am aspect of things. Mm. Every event, there should be a doubles pro-am with the doubles guys and they should be out there the day before the tournament or even the day of tournaments because they don't play more than about an hour in most of these events. Go out and do the sponsor thing, play with a few of the players that have paid good money to be sponsors and be part of the events and build your name recognition slowly and and gradually that way. Mm -hmm. And to me, tennis does not, not a very good job of that of actually embracing the fans and bringing them into the environment and creating connections. Um, And a lot of these doubles players are great. I mean, they're phenomenal players. They're phenomenal people, good communicators, all that stuff, but no one knows who they are. Um, So that's on the tournaments a little bit as well, the tournament organizers, things like that, and the players themselves. A lot of players don't want to do the sponsor things. And Mm -hmm. I always say, are you an athlete or are you a professional athlete? The professional side of being an athlete is all that stuff. That's part of your job. That's how your paychecks come to you is because of that. And the best athletes in the world who aren't the superstars that don't need any of that understand Mm. that. They know that connection they got to build. So those are the two biggest ways they would do it. I don't think you need to mess with formats. I don't think that changes anything really with the interest. That's not the issue. It's more – how do you get the connection and how do you get people to actually know who they are? Because if they know who they are, they watch. Right. So it's not, it's got nothing to do with the, the style of play. It's got to do with who the people are. If there are people that no one knows the name of, why would you watch? Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Some great points. Uh, 
Um, all right, Dr. Kovacs, thank you uh, so much for coming on. Um, any final requests uh, of the audience before we let you go? No, no, I oh, appreciate all you're doing. I obviously love doubles and I think it's great um, to really promote the sport, promote both at the recreational level as well as at the pro level. And if anyone wants to reach out to me, obviously they know how to find me. Go to kovacsinstitute.com, um, check out what we're doing there. If anyone, we talked a lot about physical training. Um, look yeah. for uh, anyone in your area who's an International Tennis Performance Association certified person. That means they've gone through training through the IT. TPA, which is the leader in tennis, fitness, and sports science in the world. Um, and those people have sort of got specialized training in how to work with tennis players. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. We'll link to all that in the show notes for everyone listening. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks again, uh, Mark. And thank you everyone for listening. And we will talk to you next week. If you're a doubles player, you'll love our weekly strategy newsletter. Every Thursday, I send you my best doubles tips, tactics, and strategies that you can use in your very next match. And when you sign up, I'll also send you a free 20-page ebook that has my favorite doubles tactics for forcing errors and getting more easy volleys at the net. Go to thetennistribe.com newsletter to sign up now.